90s basketball was a lot of fun playing against these dudes. They absolutely fought it every night. Five, four, three, two, one. Hill puts it on the floor. And stops anybody down. He brought the whole goal down. Matumbo embraces the ball in the unlikely upset. They're on their feet. A new NBA assist king, John Stockton. The crowd going crazy. To Michael, three, two, Michael, firing! What's up, everybody? You know what time it is. My name is Brian Swain, and you've got a lot on the 90s basketball show. My guest this time out is a name very familiar to fans of college basketball in the 90s, Reggie Jerry. Reggie was a star guard for the legendary coach Lute Olsen at the University of Arizona from 1992 to 1996, and he went on to play in the NBA with the Cleveland Cavs and the San Antonio Spurs. He's since enjoyed a very successful coaching career, and now he's back at his alma mater working in the athletic department. I caught up with him recently, and here's my conversation with Reggie Geary. For Arizona at guard, 6'2", from Santa Ana, California, number 44, Reggie Geary. Welcome to the show, Reggie. How are you? I'm doing good, Brian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, thank you for joining me. Excited to get the chance to talk to you and um, looking forward to covering all sorts of different topics. Uh, but first off, Reggie, um, I want to start off. We lost the great Hall of Fame coach, Lute Olson recently. And, of course, he was somebody that you played for for four seasons at the University of Arizona and then had the chance to go back and work with on his coaching staff. And if I could, Reggie, maybe just get some of your reflections on Coach Olson. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for asking. You know, obviously, uh, uh, Coach Olson, uh, Hall of Fame uh, coach, uh, meant so many, uh, meant so much to so many of us. Uh, he played a, a huge part, not only in my life, but in, in hundreds, if not thousands of other people. And, you know, just from a basketball standpoint, um, I, and from our standpoint, he's a little underrated. You know, we really... Uh, to see how he's innovated the game over the years and his ability to adjust his lineups and play with different styles. Uh, keep in mind, he at one point uh, during the, the late 80s, you know, he had Sean Elliott and Steve Kerr. Uh, you know, he went from that team uh, to playing with three centers at one point, which with Sean Rooks, Brian Williams, and Ed Stokes, to uh, just a few years later transitioning to three guards um, with my 94 Final Four team and Damon Stoudemire, Caleb Reeves, and myself. And so he really showed a, a great flexibility of understanding what his team looked like. Um, you know, he went to the Final Four, I believe, four or five times, took in two different universities. So uh, a giant in the basketball world who's, who's really – is really missed uh, not only in, in Tucson, but throughout the basketball community. Well, you got to experience playing for him in the early nineties. And then back many years later, you got to experience working with him uh, in your role as an assistant coach. What were those two dynamics like? Yeah. You know, um, you know, being a player under him, it, it was fantastic. You know, coach Olson always had such great style, had such a great presence about him. Uh, you know, he was kind of cool hand Luke a little bit in terms of, you know, even though he was a fiercely competitive individual, he never panicked. 
I don't remember him sweating all that much, but um, he was somebody who, who really was a player's coach who allowed people to kind of do what they do best and, and incorporate that into the system. And, and then going to be an assistant coach for him in the 2000s, um, it was, it was very similar, you know, in terms of he gave his assistant coaches a lot of room to operate. You know, he didn't micromanage. He trusted you to go out and do your job as an assistant, as he did as a player. So um, it was a very relaxed atmosphere. Uh, coach had a very special way of um, imparting his confidence onto you and onto the group where you expected to win ball games. You expected to play at a high level and uh, he made it enjoyable. And I'm very, we're, I think I, and we are very fortunate. We had him in our lives. As you said, cool head Luke, that was very much as a fan or as a spectator watching him, the impression you came away with. And so that is also very much how he was too, away from the spotlight, I guess, you know, in your day-to-day interactions and in practice and that kind of things. Most definitely. Coach, you know, in terms of practice, you know, he was somebody who was very, uh, he was very detail-oriented in his practice plan. He knew every day what he wanted to come in and work on. Um, and so from, you know, we never had any, uh, loss of confidence. There was no hesitation in terms of who our leader was. Coach came in, he was prepared, he was confident, and we followed suit. Um, keep in mind also, Coach has a large family. You know, him and uh, his first wife, uh, Bobby, uh, you know, they have a, you know, a large number of children, grandchildren. So Coach was used to having big families, and he incorporated his, his players into that family, you know, going to his house for breakfast or, you know, Bobby Olson uh, kind of being the, the, the team mom. So uh, it was a, a family atmosphere. Coach liked that. He liked to have players around him. He liked to tell stories and be Coach Olson, and uh, it made for, for a nice environment. With the 56th pick in the 1996 NBA draft, the Cleveland Cavaliers select Reggie Geary, University of Arizona. Well, he spent four years playing for Colts Olsen at Arizona. And as you mentioned there, that included the run to the Final Four in 1994. You were all Pac-10 in 1996 and then eligible for the NBA draft that year. And I thought it'd be interesting to ask you about your NBA draft experience because we have the NBA draft coming up here and it's going to be unlike anything we've seen before given the circumstances in the world right now. But I'd be curious to get what your draft experience was like. You were drafted 56th by Cleveland. Walk me through the process a little bit. I know back then in the days, that was when the Phoenix pre-draft cap was pretty big. It was, it was. Um, yeah, you know, as soon as the season kind of finished up, um, that year, everybody kind of started turning their minds to the draft and kind of what they need to prepare. Um, you know, you're a senior now, so you're going to start shopping for agents a little bit and see what kind of resources um, they have to offer. So I kind of went through that whole mill of flying around the country and, and meeting with individuals. Um, you're also going to start the process of, like you say, you're going to go to Phoenix at the pre-draft camp. Uh, I went to Phoenix that year and actually was was the first team um, there as a top five players in terms of my performance. Um, and then as you, you might remember after Phoenix, we'd all go to Chicago out to Moody, um, Moody Bible um, Institute, I believe, or Moody Bible College is where they used to have another one, the, the next step in terms of the pre-draft camp. And, and I went out there and fared well. And so I was feeling pretty good about where I was at. Um, there was a lot of projections of me uh, being uh, bottom of the first, top of the second. And I thought I interviewed well. And, and so uh, it's a stressful time. Um, it, it, you definitely start understanding it's the business aspect of it all, but um, you know, even though it didn't, I was very fortunate and blessed to be drafted when I was, I thought I was going to go a little bit earlier. So I have to embarrass, I'm a little embarrassed to say I was disappointed come draft night, but at the same time, it, it's a, it's a great experience. And if you're fortunate enough to go through that, you're, you're very lucky.
were you at home or where were you when you found out that you did get drafted? Yeah, no, I was in my, I was in my apartment. I was in my apartment here in Tucson um, with my, my girlfriend, now my wife, um, just kind of watching it. And my, you know, had, maybe uh, my mom came out that weekend, if I remember, I made a couple of friends that were popping in and out, but it was pretty low key uh, just because I didn't know. Sports Illustrated had me going, uh, I think like 29 to the Lakers. And I had some conversations. So uh, I found out years later from Jerry West, um, talking with him, that it came down between Derek Fisher and myself. Um, so I, I, I hate to say it, but maybe the Lakers made the right decision after selling Derek's career, but I think I might've been a good Laker. Wow. Uh, had the Cavs talked to you before? They had not in actuality. They were, they, they, they didn't feel I was going to be there when I was, um, they had to address some, some big men, um, uh, concerns. That's they ended drafting uh, Vitaly Potapenko, who had a very nice career. So did um, Zdrunas Olgalskis. Um, so they were they were very happy to have me. I was very happy to be there. Obviously, to uh, to be drafted by Wayne Embry, uh, an historic figure, one of the first African American general managers in the NBA, was a great honor. And uh, my time in Cleveland was good. Did you find out? Did you get a phone call or anything? Of course, this is well before a text message or anything like that. Uh, or were you watching live when they called your name? That was when you first knew. Uh, no, and actually, they call me right. They get, they do give you a, a little bit of a, he, a heads up. They call me right before and said, "Hey, uh, we didn't expect you to be here, but we happy we're happy that we have a chance to, to get you, and so uh, we're going to go ahead and draft you here in the next couple of minutes." So uh, it was it was really great to get that call and to hear your name. Well, that must have been incredible too, because at that point, it was coming down to the last few picks of the draft. It really was, and like I said, I, I was. I was, um, you know, in all honesty, I was a little, I was a little bit in shock uh, up until that point. I, I anticipated going a little earlier, but you never know how these things are going to play out. Um, I ended up going 56 when I did. I went in there. I, I made the team, um, you know, I, um, so at the end of the day, it all worked out for the most part. Do you remember your first game in the NBA? Um, yeah, I do. My first game actually was that we were playing in New Jersey. Um, I'm originally from New Jersey. I was born in Trenton. So it was kind of, it was kind of like this whole thing I was playing in my mind, kind of like the birth of my career is kind of happening in the same place where I was born. So I remember being there, uh, just kind of staring up at the lights, just trying to take it all in. Cause you got to keep in mind that first year, not to say the first year, the first few months um, of your rookie year, you're a fan. Uh, you know, you're, you're just, you're still processing everything, trying to take this in night in, night out, seeing all these great players that you always dreamed of playing against. So, you know, it, the, the quicker you can get out of that mode, the better, but those first couple of months and that first night, man, you're a fan and just trying to soak it all in. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because I was looking through your career game logs to see who some of the players that you uh, would have played against were. And I did notice that you crossed paths a few times with Michael Jordan and the, uh, the dynasty bulls. I did. I did. I got to play against Jordan. I want to say in all about eight times, eight or nine times, had the opportunity to guard him. He guarded me and during points of my career. So obviously, you know, um, uh, players of the 90s and, and 80s, you know, that was a dream come true to, to be on a stage and, and to battle against against the GOAT, against the greatest. You were regarded as a very, very, very good defender. And I probably just already answered the question here with you having to check Jordan, but who is the toughest player you've guarded? And if the answer is Jordan, then who is the second toughest? Yeah. I mean, there's so many, there's so many players, whether going from high school, you know, I went to modern day high school. So we, we played a pretty much national premier schedule there in high school, uh, in college, you know, Alan Iverson and Jason Kidd, uh, John Wallace are just a couple of names that come to mind. Um, you know, in the NBA, you know, I had opportunity to play against John Stockton, you know, Michael Jordan every day in practice, 
my first year, I went against Terrell Brandon, who was an all-star that year. It just was an unbelievable lesson just to, to work, work with him and, and see his skill set. Um, Gary Payton, I mean, the list goes on. I played against Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal. So um, there's a lot of great players out there. You know, Iverson was tough. Damon Stoudemire in practice and in the pros was tough. So um, there was a lot of good players, and I was very fortunate to, to cross paths with a lot of them. Spurs with their first lead of the game. Geary left alone for the three. Reggie Geary, welcome to the playoffs, Reggie. But in the 97-98 season with the Spurs and then got a chance to go to the playoffs that year too. And you had a really interesting journey from that point on. Tell me what, how about it was you came to get into coaching. Was that something that was always in the back of your mind, even when as a player? Yeah, it's interesting how it kind of all developed, you know, after the 97-98 season, you know, I was with the Spurs, and then I ended up playing a little bit of minor league ball and going overseas. So I almost played nine years all uh, professionally, and it seemed towards the end of my career there. I'm now, you know, 30, 31 years old. Um, a lot of the coaches, my coaches in France, my coach in Ukraine, they were pulling me aside and were picking my brain. I think I, I – people had told me and, and I kind of recognized I had a good basketball IQ, a basketball mind. And, and so I started kind of gravitating towards that position. And then right there towards the end of my career, a lot of the, uh, the right people in my mind were telling me, Hey man, you really should think about going into coaching. And when I say right people, I mean, uh, Gary McKnight, who was my high school coach at modern day high school, um, Dave Unai, who's a mentor of mine. He is a, a figure in the Los Angeles area. Uh, Cal State LA and Cal State Dominguez Hill, the, the floor is named after him there. Pete Newell, who I had opportunity to work with on some big man camps out in Hawaii. And just people in general were just saying, hey, you think you should think about going into coaching. And so uh, I came back after my last year of play in 2004. Uh, I had a little bit of work in terms of getting my degree. Uh, got my degree, and the first person um, I spoke with was Coach Olson. And uh, even though I had a couple offers to go other places, uh, playing on my alma mater, playing for a Hall of Fame coach was, was a no-brainer. One of the things I found really interesting about your coaching resume is you spent uh, six years in Japan and you even won a championship there, which I thought was pretty cool because you were one year too, too soon in Arizona. Of course, they won the Final Four in 1997. You were one year too soon in San Antonio in, uh, when they won the championship in 1999, the year after you were there. Finally, your timing worked out there in Japan. Yeah, you know, it, uh, you know you're right. I always tell people with the U of A team, the Spurs team, I taught them well. So even though I was coaching, uh, I led them in the right direction. And, and to finally have my, my timing, uh, you know, work out as a, as a coach was fantastic. Um, you know, yeah, as you mentioned, I, I coached in Japan for six years. Um, in, in all, I coached for 14 years. I was a coach, as you mentioned, at the University of Arizona. Um, SMU in Dallas, Texas. I was a head coach in, in, in the NBA Development League for two years, and, and now I find myself in Japan, and uh, it was just a great experience for my family and I. Um, my, my first year in Japan, uh, coaching a, a Yokohama team, uh, which is in the suburbs of Tokyo. We were able, in the, in the organization's first year, we got to the Final Four. And so we were returning in that 13, 14 season with, with our core guys, our core Americans are coming back for the most part. And uh, we had a really good year. You know, we, we played well. Uh, they were receptive uh, to my message. Um, I was open to their ideas. And, it, you know, anytime you win a championship, it's, it, it's, it's kind of a magical time where everything just aligns. And so to, to win it that year, to be the first American coach to win in the Japan's professional league, 
um, you know, it was just a great honor and just a great time. And, and, all, and then to spend four more years there, all, you know, culminating with me coaching uh, the Mitsubishi uh, Diamond Dolphins, a, a corporate team, um, you know, it just was a really special time and something I look back on uh, fondly. I imagine there must be some unique challenges that would come with that. For one thing, the language barrier as a coach, where a large percentage of your roster speaks a different language. Now, how did you guys communicate? Did you end up picking up a lot of Japanese while you were there? Yeah, unfortunately, I did not. I mean, I, I, I can speak like, you know, every day, how are you doing, ordering food, uh, asking maybe for directions. Um, I was pretty decent at it. It's a very difficult language. Um, fortunately, uh, we have apps on our phones that can kind of help you to day to day. But I also had a translator with me um, all times on the court and in huddles. And then uh, I had access to him 24 hours a day in case I ever got into a bind. So uh, my big thing was just to obviously, you know, you, you really, um, you really are, uh, you really need to have a good translator that that translator coach relationship has to be good because um, the Japanese are very interesting in the fact that if I'm yelling uh, in some instructions or I'm upset about something, uh, my translator a lot of times would say it in the most polite way, <laughs> which I like, but we, we'd always have that conversation saying, you know, you kind of have to say it the way I say it just to make sure they're getting the message. But uh, so having a good translator was awesome. I usually just spoke to them in English like they spoke English. I wouldn't let them off the hook. Um, cause you know, players, sometimes they could speak the language, but if it was a bad moment. Maybe coach, I don't understand. So I didn't let them get away with that too much. And, uh, and I spoke in a lot of basketball lingo. So those are the probably two or three ways I, I address that. How did the, um, team culture, the team dynamic, and just the cultural expectations of the players differ from what you might've been used to in the States? Cause I imagine, you know, you have to resonate with them to be an effective leader in that environment. Most definitely. It's, it's like any other environment. Um, you know, they want to come in and see, you know, uh, your mannerisms, see how you're, how you are day to day. Are you consistent? Um, are you a hard worker prepared? You know, my big thing is sweat equity. I want to get on the floor, really be out there with the guys, uh, breaking a sweat with them, you know, showing that I'm in this with them. And so um, one of the biggest differences cultural wise between like North America or American basketball and being in Japan was um, I learned early on uh, Japan is a very respectful um, culture in the fact that it even goes to the fact that if a person is one second older than you one minute older than you he is seen to be a senior and you kind of have to um, acquiesce or you kind of have to you know not bow down but he's a he's an older gentleman so you have to show him that respect and so when you take that that kind of a mindset and got into a competitive environment, I would find out a lot of times my younger players wouldn't want to challenge some of the veterans thinking it would be disrespectful maybe to go at them in practice or to, or to maybe embarrass them. And I quickly, as soon as I kind of established that this was occurring said, no, 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 no. This is going to be more like, this is going to be a very competitive environment. If you're a younger player and you feel you can challenge an older player respectfully, I want you to do that because we want to get the five best guys. And, uh, that message resonated with a lot of the younger players and it get, it put the older players on notice because they were used to just kind of cruising in their lane and no one's going to challenge them, uh, which we all probably would agree is probably a recipe for disaster. So once we were able to try to change that culture, change that mindset that, hey, this is a competitive environment, we're looking for the best players, um, that really changed things for me. And you mentioned too, you were the first American coach to win the championship there. You got to take a lot of pride in that, I'd imagine. 
Well, I take an enormous amount of pride in that. You know, um, some of the coaches over there were longtime coaches, uh, you know, uh, former Olympic coaches from other countries, former NBA coaches. Um, so uh, it wasn't like there weren't people trying. So to go there and to accomplish that um, was, a, was a great honor. And so I have the pictures in my office of me being tossed into the air in front of 10,000 people. And uh, it just it, it just gives me a lot of uh, good feeling, a lot of great emotions to, to accomplish that and do it with a special group with my family and my wife in attendance. Um, it, it was a special time. Well, they can thank Gary for us keeping Arizona in the game right now. He's been in the photographer area. He's been on the press bench everywhere. Had some follow-up dunks, some great assists. So now you're back where it all began at Arizona, and uh, you have been in this role, Director of Development, since you've returned from Japan? Yeah, you know, I, I came back, my, my family and I, we, 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 you know, we were very close. We were having discussions about, you know, we're having great success in Japan and we're loving it there. Um, is this somewhere we want to stay for the rest of our lives? And we decided with my, with my, so I have two sons, they are now coming into the high school age. Um, we decided we were going to come back to America and maybe see kind of what opportunities were here. Um, I ended up interviewing with the, uh, with, with the Los Angeles Lakers as a player development guy. Uh, had a great interview and thought I landed that job. Unfortunately, I didn't land it. And so um, now is at a point where do I want to keep chasing this dream of being uh, an NBA coach potentially, or do we want to settle down and, and maybe uh, give the, the kids an opportunity here just to go to one school and one high school. So made the decision to, to, to set our roots here in Tucson and man, all U of A, the University of Arizona has always been great to me. Um, you know, they were open to listening to me being a development officer. And so I've been there about a year and a half and it's worked out really well. You know, I'm a development officer. So my main, my main responsibility is basically uh, going into the community, uh, you know, meeting with our donors, uh, taking them to lunch and dinner, creating a relationship where they feel comfortable, where they're going to donate or do something philanthropically with the university to help us provide resources for our, for our young student athletes and, and making sure they have the best. So it's been a great fit. Uh, at the same time, while I've been to U of A, they've uh, allowed me to be the play-by-play -play, um, broadcaster for uh, Pac-12 road games. So I've kept my foot in the door that way. And just as recently as this past month, I spent about four weeks as an interim coach with the women's basketball team, um, Adia Barnes. Our head coach actually had a had a had a had a child, and so she took her uh, maternity leave, and she asked me for last uh, the last month to kind of be with the team and and keep in mind the U of A women's basketball team is a top ten team. So that was another great experience to have. Sounds like lots of exciting things happening for you there. When you mentioned you have two sons heading into the high school, are they basketball players as well? Yeah, my my oldest boy Quincy, he's um he's a, a twenty twenty two. Um, guard and um, he so he plays basketball about six one he's he's getting better and doing a nice job starting to get some a little bit of attention here um, but has to continue to keep working hard um, but just a really good kid and an excellent student and excellent teammate and then my youngest son Wesley who's 13 uh, does not play basketball or any sports um, he is our artist he is our singer you know he's uh, he's been with the some boys chorus where he's traveled uh, the world with um, he's done some some plays um, and so he's all about the arts and hopes to be on Broadway one day. Oh, wow. Okay. That's very cool. Very cool. Um, well, I'll close out here, Reggie, with, this is probably my favorite part of the show now, I like to ask guests some of their favorite things from the nineties. And so I'll start with you. Do you have a favorite nineties movie? Nineties movie. Um, I was a big, I was a huge do the right thing guy, Spike Lee. Okay, um, I think that just makes it. Uh, it's right around eighty nine ninety, I believe. 
All right, all right. So, so I'm going to go with that one. That was a big okay. movie for me in the 90s. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. Uh, do you have a favorite 90s TV series? 90s TV series. Um, what did we all – oh, Martin. We all watched Martin come Thursday night. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, I think it was Jason Sasser who played for Texas Tech. I had yeah. him on. He was telling stories about how they would always have to convince their coach on Thursday nights to, to wrap up so they can go watch Martin. Yeah, no, I know Sasser, and he's, he's right. Thursday night, it was locked in. You had to go watch Martin. You had to talk about it the next day. And, of course, this is well before the days of PVR, right? You had to be there to see it. <laughs> yeah, you had to, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and music, uh, did you have any favorite 90s artists, uh, individuals, or groups? Yeah, you know, I was big, obviously big in the R&B and the rap back in the 90s. Uh, the one group that everybody kind of associated with me on the team was, was Wu-Tang Clan. Uh, I was a big Wu-Tang fan, always listening to it before games. And so, uh, you know, guys used to kid me because, I, like I said, I was a good defender and, and, uh, and I fouled a little bit. So they always thought that, that Kung Fu style was kind of good. <laughs> Kind of good, but I was a big Wu Tang fan. Let's just say that. Did you get a, a Wu nickname? No, no. I I didn't get a nickname until I got to the NBA. It was just, when I was with the NBA, they would call me Jacket, like Straight Jacket, because I could lock people up. Um, but I didn't have a nickname back then. I was just Reggie. Well, Jacket's a pretty good moniker. That's not bad at all. <laughs> and I don't know if you've seen on the internet they have these Wu nickname generators. You just put your name in there, and they fire out something, and that that's your Wu name. So I'm gonna check that oh, out. There you go. <laughs> Well, Reggie, thank you very much for joining me and sharing some of your memories and, of course, also your reflections of Colts Olson. I appreciate it. We wish you continued success with everything and can't wait to see what you get up to in the future. Yeah, I really appreciate it, Brian. I appreciate you doing this, talking 90s basketball, man. This is great. So, so thank you for having me. I want to, again, thank Reggie Geary and, of course, thank all of you for listening. As always, you can catch all the episodes on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, tsn1260.ca and check out the new show archive at anchor.fm slash 90s basketball and with that i'm out my name is brian swain and this has been the 90s basketball show